Residents at Brightview Senior Living Communities enjoy enhanced possibilities, independence, and choice. Brightview Dulles Corner in Herndon and Brightview, Great Falls, offer vibrant senior independent living, assisted living, and memory care services through various daily programs and cultural events. Chef-prepared meals, safety and security, transportation, resort-style amenities, and high-quality care. Everything you need is here. Discover more at brightviewseniorliving.com. Equal housing opportunity. Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury. The premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Live March 20th from the Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City. Featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. With AT&T in-car Wi-Fi, elevate your adventure by transforming your vehicle into a reliable Wi-Fi hotspot. Connect up to 10 devices up to 50 feet away from your vehicle, making it ideal for camping and road trips. Don't miss out on the fun. Embark on your next adventure today. Visit att.com slash in-car Wi-Fi to check if you're eligible for a free trial. Always pay careful attention to the road and don't drive distracted. Wi-Fi hotspot intended for passenger use only when vehicle is in operation. Compatible device and vehicle required. As I see more deeply into reality, I get better at seeing more deeply within, which allows me to cultivate the inner peace more powerfully, which then allows me to see more deeply into reality and the two spin on each other. Hello, and welcome to the Psychology Podcast. Today, we welcome John Verveke to the show. John is an award-winning professor at the University of Toronto in psychology, cognitive science, and Buddhist psychology. His academic interests include wisdom, mindfulness, meditation, relevance realization, general intelligence, and rationality. He's the author of Awakening from the Meaning Crisis YouTube series and co-author of Zombies in Western Culture, A 21st Century Crisis. In this episode, I talked to John Verveke about the meaning crisis. There's a growing number of people who are struggling to find purpose in life. Society seems to be losing touch of its humanity. John argues that we can address the meaning crisis by appreciating and grounding ourselves in reality. We can find relevance by deepening our relationship with the world and the people around us. In turn, this reverence affords us peace of mind while recognizing the interconnection of all things. We cover quite a lot in this episode. We also talk about the topics of transcendence, mattering, narcissism, spirituality, and artificial intelligence. Once we got going, it was quite hard to stop us. John is a really thoughtful and insightful human and uh, scientist, and we nerded out at such a deep level that we together felt a great sense of meaning by the end of this episode. We hope you feel it too, and we hope you learn a lot. In fact, I know you will. So without further ado, I bring you Professor John Vervicki. I heard you were trained as a philosopher. Is the word on the street true about that? <laughs> well, uh, yes, in some ways. I did a BA and an MA in philosophy, and then I got sort of disheartened, almost disillusioned about academic philosophy. And I went away for a year and reflected, not a particularly good year for me, um, mm. but I discovered cognitive science, and I went back and did a BSc in cognitive science, a specialist degree. Now, because I had done all of the philosophy, I was not able to take any philosophy courses as I did my CogSci degree. So I ended up taking the psychology courses equivalent to doing a specialist undergraduate degree in psychology. So I sort of got a training in CogSci, uh, especially in psychology, and then I had my training in philosophy. Then I went back and did my PhD in philosophy, but on cognitive science. So that's how it, uh, it, it all worked out. Yeah, I fell in love with the cognitive science um, in high school, and it seemed to me like the field that would allow me to combine multiple interests. Yes, you know, which was so cool about it. You know, yeah, at the time, I think it was uh, linguistics, philosophy, neuroscience, computer science, and those are the branches of cognitive science. Have we have we added anything since then in the field that we? Psychology has usually been one of the branches too. I mean psychology, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> Let's not yeah. forget psychology. Yeah. <laughs> of course, yeah. Yeah, and I just fell in love with the field of cognitive science so much, and there's so much we can explain through that method. 
you know, I really resonate with your search for meaning, mm. you know, yes. uh, within psychology. Right. And in the field of psychology, there's, uh, there's like theories, there's like people mean different things by the word meaning. Yes. Uh, recently, Frank Martella and Michael Steger proposed three meanings of meaning, coherence, purpose, and significance. So I'd like to start off to hear your view. What does meaning mean to you? So I think that, I mean, that, that's seminal work by them. There's been more recent work uh, of Fourth Factor. Oh, really? Uh, Mattering, which I think is very significant. In fact, some of the evidence suggests that mattering is more important than purpose, and probably that significance folds into mattering. I th think they're similar. Yeah. yeah, they're similar, but mattering gets a little, I think mattering is a little bit clearer, and it has the advantage, uh, I think, of being appropriately named thusly because that connects it with the precedent work in philosophy by Susan Wolf on meaning in life and why it matters. Mm. And so that connection is really important. I think the notion of coherence is a work in progress. So some of the original experimental work on coherence by, uh, by Huntsman, Samantha Huntsman, has failed to replicate. Mm. which of course doesn't mean we throw it out. That's not what failure to replication means. It means that there's something probably wrong in our construct in an important way. And I think the kind of coherence we should be talking about is not sort of simple perceptual coherence, the kind and, or narrative coherence, the kind she was testing in her experiment. So for coherence, I think we have to look at that about our cognition that helps us resist falling prey to absurdity. And mm. so I think it's more of a perspectival coherence. I'm making uh, use here of Nagel's sense of the absurd, where you know a third-person cosmic perspective undermines our personal local perspectives and makes us feel like our lives are insignificant. Mm. They have no meaning. And it's, it's this perspectival clash that I think threatens meaning in life. The opposite would be a way of interweaving these perspectives. Uh, to see the world in a grain of sand, to quote, quote Blake. I think that's the kind of coherence that is actually central to meaning in life. And the mattering, I think, is, Wolf argued it is, it's the sense of being connected to something that has a reality and a value beyond your own existence. And I think that's what they were trying to get at with significance, but they didn't capture the connectedness part. So I now would argue that what contributes to meaning in life is purpose, perspectival coherence, and mattering. The mattering one is really front and center of my mind these days. Yeah. We can integrate a little positive psychology in here as well. Um, Isaac Prilotensky's research on mattering, I don't know if you're familiar with it? I have read about it while I've been reading some of, these, some of the research I've been reading on mattering. But go ahead, please. Yeah, Isaac's work is really great in showing that well-being needs to take into account the mattering construct if we mm. want to really have well-being for all um, mm -hmm. because um, a lot of research in positive psychology is like well let's help happy people become happier <laughs> as yeah, opposed yeah. to like people yeah. who are languishing let's see how we can get them to be happy you know and uh, a big source of languishing is when you feel like you don't matter yes so i really like how he's brought that into the happiness uh, and meaning framework so i really like that but it's been on my mind as well because I've been really interested in integrating narcissism into our understanding of um, well-being. And it seems like people who have a lot of experiences in their life where they feel like they don't matter, they become very preoccupied with mattering. And yes. it's like the need for self-esteem. It's almost like the need for self-esteem is a part of this mattering construct. And that hasn't really been discussed as much. Um, and I'd love to get your, your point on this. Well, I think, first of all, excellent move. I think seeing narcissism as a pathology of mattering, I think that's insightful and astute. So first of yeah. all, uh, thank you for bringing that mm -hmm. forward. That's excellent. I think that dovetails with a lot of the work I do. I try to integrate mattering with a lot of the work I do on the nature of embodied cognition and that this sense of connectedness. I call it religio because the way it often has this, these kinds of religious connotations for a sense of the sacred. But this sense of, uh, of connectedness, I think, actually results from sort of the core functions of intelligence and consciousness, which is to screen out what's irrelevant and get us to hone in on what's relevant. And that honing in 
isn't something like relevance isn't in us or in the world. It's it's a fundamental between us and the world. It's a fundamental connectedness. And that relevance realization, and I mean realization, both awareness and making that connectedness, I think is the central thing uh, to human cognition and consciousness. It's central to our agency. And so anything that properly nourishes that is deeply nourishing to the core of our cognitive agency. And, and I think that's part of what gives it its spiritual significance, its sacredness. And I think our culture is struggling. And I think your book has, uh, perhaps I, I, I detected a subtext of, you know, our culture isn't really structured well to helping us uh, meet these kinds of needs. Right. And that's I right. felt a kindred spirit in that. And that means, I think, what we see more and more, a self-centeredness that is trying to demand that connectedness, but in exactly the wrong direction. And, and I see, I think that's why narcissism ultimately in, in very fundamental ways undermines cognitive agency. Uh, and we need to do a little bit more research into the cognitive effects of narcissism and the way it undermines certain kinds tasks. Let me, instead of that sounding empty without teeth, let me give me one quick bit that makes it a little bit more plausible. Hmm. I think it's becoming clear that sort of the main connectedness uh, that makes us intelligence isn't sort of our raw processing power. If you take a look at measures that predict our IQ, like measures of working memory, there's pretty clear evidence that chimps have better working memory capacity than us. Hmm. Pretty undeniable. And so are they more intelligent than us? Well, why do we have all of this? And the chimps are basically just doing what they're doing, right? And this goes to the idea that what our intelligence most allows us to do is to plug into the collective intelligence of distributed cognition. And that's exactly the place where the narcissist is uh, most problematic because they don't, they're sort of thwarted. They misunderstand or misapprehend uh, how to tap into that uh, social interfacing. And I, I would predict that that would have significant ways in which they are going to suffer cognitive impairment. One, and I'll shut up after this, one clear oh, no. example would be, like, we need to study it, but I would hypothesize and proposing that there's an overlap between narcissism and being autodidactic in a way that exactly thwarts you about properly interfacing with social cognition so you properly can transcend your own egocentrism, etc. So that would be a proposal I would make. No, I love what you're saying. And it makes it, I just think of this uh, distinction that, that Abraham Maslow made between the, de the deficiency realm of cognition and the growth realm of cognition. Yes. I think yes. it's a really important distinction to make. And it seems like so many people in our society right now are so stuck in the deficiency mode. And what I've been really struck in the meaning literature, you know, they psychometrically tried to measure, they come up with the, the meaning scale. Yes. And they found that if you score high in having a lot of meaning in your life, it's correlated positively with so many positive things. But if you score high in, I'm still searching for meaning, it's actually correlated with lots of like depression and yes. Um, yes. anxiety. Yeah. And I noticed the same exact parallel in the mattering literature. And they have the anti-mattering scale, which is the extent to which you feel like you don't matter. And that's correlated to all these negative things like depression. Yeah. But if you do feel like you matter, it's correlated with all these positive things. So I think there, someone needs to integrate these two literatures. When you're in the, I think the overarching thread here, correct me if I'm wrong, is like if you're really stuck in this deficiency realm where you see everyone you meet not as a potential growth connection, but as a way to validate you. Yes. Like that's the only way, that's the only thing you view people as is um, are, do they respect me or do they not respect me versus oh, you, let, me find, let me actually care about this person <laughs> independent right. of me, yes, you know? Yes. Um, you're, you're constantly full of strife and constantly full of anxiety and depression. And how can we get people and move them to the promised land, the growth realm of existence? I so. think that's right. And, uh, uh, and for me, uh, that's where you find inevitable connection between these three things, sort of a sense of sacredness. Sacredness mm. is an apprehension of reality that it has a growth dimension affordance for us. That's, I, I think that's ultimately sort of, a, I wouldn't say that's that. a complete metaphysical definition or anything like that, but that is certainly its phenomenological way it becomes phenomenologically present to us, I would argue. And so there's the sacredness, and that's the religio 
And then there is, right, the degree to which we are affording people avenues for that connectedness, the meaning. And then that connects with degree to which people have to engage in real self-transcendence, which means really fundamentally a project of, and you have to say this the right way, you have to say it paired with self-transcendence or it will fall into the deficiency mode. So please remember that. But self-correction, right? Mm -hmm. The capacity to cultivate virtue because you realize your proclivity for vice, the, pro the, the capacity to cultivate seeing through illusion into reality, which is a central feature of wisdom. So like, and then when you're seeing through reality, seeing through illusion into reality, then the, the sacredness of reality starts to open itself up. So like we don't do enough about the connecting the wisdom and the meaning and the sacredness together in an appropriate way. I would argue in our, in our culture right now. Yeah, I love that you bring the word sacredness. Some psychologists be like, well, how do you operationalize that construct, right? But I think that there is a certain sacredness to each individual's self-actualization journey that we don't really appreciate. You know, we view people through the lens of ideology and through the lens of all yes. these things these days. Yes. We don't we don't treat the whole human as a, in their their own unique journey as sacred. So I love it. Well, I'm glad. I mean, I think there is a way to think about it. And I mean, Plato made this argument. It's not my argument. It's his argument. Hmm. But uh, the things that afford that connectedness are a reduction of uh, internal conflict because that undermines your agency. Hmm. And that, that makes you prone to self-deception because one part will mislead the other. Hmm. So peace of mind. And if we can bring back a deep meaning of that. But we don't want that peace of mind to come because we are disconnected from reality and some kind of spiritual bypassing. The other thing we, we want is we want a connectedness to reality. And Plato proposed that those are two meta drives for us mm. uh, because those are essential to mattering. Uh, I, I would, now I'm making an argument on his behalf. All right. In addition to whatever we desire, we want that desire to be realized uh, within us in peace of mind. And we do. We want whatever satisfies that desire to be really real. And those two meta drives, I think, um, point to when we find things that satisfy us, they strike us as sacred for that reason, because they afford deep meaning. Plato's insight is these two things can be put into a relationship where they reciprocally afford each other. As I see more deeply into reality, I get better at seeing more deeply within which allows me to cultivate the inner peace more powerfully, which then allows me to see more deeply into reality and the two spin on each other. And I think that's a way in which we can operationalize it. And here's why I think we can operationalize it. We have operationalized the reverse. Mark Lewis's model of addiction is reciprocal narrowing, the exact opposite. We understand what that means as a model of addiction. Well, then we, can, we, we thereby understand the opposite, which is reciprocal opening. And I think the things that afford reliable and deep reciprocal opening are the things we regard as sacred love that yeah kind of creating upward spirals yeah and the possibility right that that spiral isn't just psychological what i mean by that is and i don't i don't i mean i'm really i mean i did quite a bit of Maslow, but there was a long long time ago in a galaxy far far away and I'm enjoying your book because it's bringing that back. And one of my oh, TAs, uh, uh, well, former TAs, he's now an RA and a co collaborator. He gave me he gave me a copy of Maslow's journal, so I'm going to actually oh, yeah. take that up. Uh, your book is inspiring me. So I would have said this of Maslow in the past or young. I'm not so sure now. So just take it then as a as a point of departure, not as a final claim. But one of criticism that had been leveled about Jung and Maslow is they completely psychologized the notion of transcendence. This is kind of a Heideggerian critique. It doesn't carry within it any existential or ontological significance. But the model I was just proposing to you says that not only are you rising up levels of the self, you're disclosing deeper and, and, and higher levels of reality as you do so. That there are truths about the world that are being disclosed. Not only is there psychological improvement in connectedness, what you're able to connect to has now been more deeply disclosed to you as well. And so it has an ontological 
and even an epistemological significance to it. It's not just a kind of psychological improvement, it's epistemological and existential improvement as well. And, if, and it, I think those are all the kinds of improvements that are available to us. So I think this model that I'm proposing to you, that's ultimately a platonic model, offers a richer notion of transcendence, at least for the psychologized versions that have come into the common understandings of Jung and Maslow. And, you know, Jung had the psychoid and maybe he was reaching out to something there, but I'm getting a sense that Maslow has something too about, there's an ontology in there. He's, this is not just a psychological um, state, but it's a state that has epistemic uh, gain in it. And, and Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Well, he would say that in the throes of a peak experience, you see reality more clearly yes. than ever ever before. So I do think he makes those claims. That's good. Um, what's needed, I would then argue, and I'm, I'm not, so I'm not making an anachronistic criticism of him. What's needed is that doesn't make any sense in a ontology that's a flat world ontology that has no levels, that everything is reduced to a fundamental single level. If the levels aren't real, then that notion of seeing more really doesn't make any sense. So you also have to re, and this is a project I'm engaged in, you have to re-argue for an ontology that is not a flat ontology such that claims like that make sense. They're not, they're not in antagonism with your worldview. Yeah, that can be a very anxious state. I believe me, I've been in it, <laughs> I've been in it. I was like, wow, I'm seeing all of this. And then how does yeah. this go with the reductive materialism? And the answer is it doesn't because reductive materialism needs you to be able to say that there are levels of reality in some real way. Sorry, reductive materialism prevents you from saying there are levels of reality in a real way. Transcendence needs you to be able to say that and to say it with real teeth. No, reality is layered. There is ultimate reality, and it's other than just the bottom level pointed to by physics. Yeah. This is why, and this might be relevant, it might not be relevant, but I I really have argued that we need to think of transcendence not as vertical, but as horizontal, that there's too many theories of transcendence that are vertical. For instance, Ken Wilber's theory is all about levels, um, mm, and nice. and he makes clear delineations, you know, that, and then you have the green level, which is the highest yes, level. Yes, yes, yes. I recently had him on my podcast, and I just challenged him on that a little bit, because I, I just, I don't like that way of thinking about reality. Yeah. Do you agree? Well, it depends what you mean. I mean, okay. there, right? It, uh, I think if you're talking about, when I talk about this, I talk about horizontal and vertical. And both of them are problematic because they both rely on a two worlds mythology that l largely isn't going to work for us anymore, I would argue. Uh, like there's a lower world and an upper world and mm -hmm. transcend even means the going up and over, right? And mm -hmm. all that stuff. And so I agree with you about that critique. What are we trying to say about levels is we're trying to say something like, there is there are emergent holes that have capacities and properties that are not captured by the underlying constituents. So it's an argument for real emergence. And if you have emergence without top-down emanation, you have just epiphenomenalism. The upper level emerges, but it doesn't do anything, and then for, and that doesn't that's not a real ontology. So you need if you want to turn the emergence emanation horizontally, and we're going deeper into the world, and those depths that's are it. more and more right? Calling to us and transforming us. I don't have any problem with that. I, I'm, I, in fact, I'm happy with that. I tend to separate them for this purely pragmatic reason. I try to keep the horizontal for talking about what's happening when we're interacting with other people in dialogue and we're opening up to each other. And then the vertical for how the, you and I together are opening up to something that transcends us both. That's yeah. my pragmatic yeah. reason for doing that. Cool. That's cool. I like that. You're you're like yes and not either or. So I like I like that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I don't want. I mean, it's got you're making a really. I mean, you're not turning it into a criticism or anything, but it could be. And so I appreciate the graciousness. Yes, talking about this language without falling into two worlds talking is something I keep proposing. We have to figure out how to do properly, and we're trying to do it right now. And that's that's where my spirit lies. My spirit doesn't lie in trying to get a hierarchical thing going again. That's not my interest. My interest is, can we pull out these different ways? There's, there's something at least phenomenologically about how you and I can transcend together when we get caught up in a conversation 
right? But that conversation can take on a life of its own and transcend both of us and call both of us. And I want to get those two dimensions at least schematically represented so we can talk about how we bring them into proper resonance with each other. Well, this is great. Let's let's just both share. Let's share each other's definitions of of transcendence. I'll st- I'll start. I want to hear what you think of my crazy convoluted <laughs> definition. <laughs> Please. That I put in transcend. By the way, uh, you know this is a spoiler. Where, you know I know you probably haven't finished the book yet, but this is right at the end of it, trying to integrate everything else in the book. So, so here we go. I say healthy transcendence, and I distinguish healthy transcendence from spiritual narcissism, which I see yes. as very vertical. Yes, I'm, yes, I'm yes. transcended and you're not. Yes. That's what I mean by vertical. That's what I mean. Excellent. By so healthy transcendence is an emergent phenomenon resulting from the harmonious integration of one's whole self in the service of cultivating the good society. Yes, uh, I like uh, that. I like that. So here's how I might tweak it. Uh, yeah, I'm going to jab with you. I'm not just going to propose exactly. my No, we're, in, we're improving. We're improving. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So I, I'm going to say that transcendence is that emergent wholeness, but it also is an emanation back down. To paraphrase Nietzsche, the height of my spirituality has to reach into the depths of my sexuality, or it's not real transcendence. So it's not just the emergence up, it's the emanation down, and it affords wise mattering to myself, to other people, and to reality realized as inexhaustible to me. Hmm. That's really clever. I'm actually low-key obsessed with your notions about wisdom. Because, I mean, I've watched your lectures on YouTube, and I love your distinction between uh, foolishness and ignorance. Um, yes. Really important. And uh, you associate foolishness with a lack of wisdom and ignorance with a lack of knowledge. Correct me yes. if I'm wrong. Yes, that's correct. So I think like wisdom and transcendence are so close. Yes. I think these things are so close. And Maslow saw wisdom a lot in the dichotomy transcendence, mm-hmm. in, in the ability to transcend all these... You know, society is stuck at all these different levels of dichotomies, good versus evil, selfish versus unselfish, male versus female, et cetera, et cetera. You can go down the line, so many things, pleasure versus, and wisdom, according to Maslow, really incorporated this ability to think in dialectics and kind of transcend and, and kind of refuse to think in terms of these binaries along these lines. What are your thoughts on this? I think that's deeply right. Mm. Yeah, go Maslow. <laughs> as long as we don't just mean Hegelian, we should not exclude, but we shouldn't just mean Hegelian sense of dialectic, but also the Platonic sense of dialectic. Yeah, yeah. And for Plato, the ultimate wisdom comes in the ultimate overcoming, sorry, the overcoming of sort of the ultimate dichotomy. And Drew Highland brings this out beautifully, but DC Schindler does as well. Uh, some of the best work on Plato, part of what's called the, the third way of uh, Platonic scholarship that is. I'm deeply invested, and I think it's deeply on the right track. But what's that? And this is the dichotomy between finitude and transcendence. Plato makes the argument that the deepest thing we face and the deepest proclivity we have towards foolishness is if we lose the polarity and fall into one of the poles. If we think we are merely finite, then we fall into despairing servitude and are prey to the tyrant. If we fall into merely transcendent, then we suffer hubris and inflation and we become the tyrant. And so we have to overcome. The the wisest thing is can we get to a place where we really accept our, we really realize in Maslow's sense of the word, right? Like actualize, but come aware of it, right? Our mortality, right? Our mortality capture in the Heideggerian sense. It cap- we are the beings whose being is in question, and we are the beings who know that we are finite. In that right. sense, we are capable of profound transcendence. But it is precisely that we realize that we are finite beings who will never be gods. Mm, there you go. Right? And it, you can see so much of foolishness as moving between, right, you know, the self-deception of despair and the self-deception of hubris. Narcissism. Yes, yeah. exactly. Yeah. Yes. And so I think, I think Plato's notion of wisdom as that capacity for, and you remember, right, in, in all of Plato's myths in the po- positive sense of the word, the person doesn't just go up and see the sun. The person also returns into the cave, right? It's always up and down, right? So 
we have to cultivate a capacity for both self-transcendence, but also self-grounding so that we are constantly at, at that sort of meta, meta virtue where we are godlike, but never gods, lovers of wisdom, but we never claim to be wise. Yeah, I love that. It's so spot on. And I wonder if we're going to disagree <laughs> on anything today, but <laughs> so spot on. You know, part of my research, I think this relates, part of my background, I was trained by Robert Sternberg. Oh, wow. I didn't know that. That's amazing. I did my PhD at Yale. In fact, uh, my Colin DeYoung was the postdoc at the same time that oh, I was there. Oh, really? Yeah. That's our connection. That's our connection. Oh, yeah. wow. Yeah. Oh, wow. Lots yeah. of connections. Wow. Yeah. Jeremy Gray and Robert Sternberg were my advisors. I studied intelligence, the neuroscience of intelligence. It just relates to a lot to what you're saying. I mean, some of the most wise people I've met in my life were uneducated. Yes. You know? To somehow assume that just because you ace the vocabulary section of an IQ test means you're going to be wise, seems a, f a very faulty assumption. <laughs> yeah, and, that, and that's where the work of Stanovich and others, and, all, and, the, yes. and the work that I've done with Anna Riedel about all the rationality debates. Like, but you know, even Stanovich's work that our best measures of general intelligence are only weakly correlated with our best measures of rationality. And even those measures of rationality, I think, are far too truncated. They, it's just largely propositional logical rationality and not all kinds of other important rationality, like attentional rationality and other things like that. But even so, mm -hmm. think about that, right? So think about that, Scott, like these two measures, measures of G and sort of, we could call it measures of R, they are correlated, but around 0.3. Now, 0.3 matters, especially in social science. Sorry, what's, sorry, what's R? What's oh, R? R is, oh, oh, sorry. You know how in G you have a positive manifold between different yeah. tests and in intelligence? Yeah. So R, the work that Stanovich showed is... Oh, the rationality you know, quotient? Is that what you're yeah, talking about? Yeah, yeah. Oh, gotcha, gotcha. Yeah yeah, 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 yeah. There's a strong positive manifold between how you do on all these rationality tests. So we really got pretty clear measures. There's yeah. problems with both, but nevertheless, it's a good like it's, it's a good basis to claim, well, what's the relation? And correlation is about 0.3. Now, that's important. You, that's, you can publish with that correlation in the social sciences. It's, uh, it's above 0.25. But it's only 0.3, which means most of the variance is not accounted for by your intelligence. So there's nothing. And this is what Stanovich has argued consistently. There's nothing paradoxical or contradictory or weird or saying that person is very intelligent and very foolish. There's nothing. There's no contradiction. Yeah, I'm so glad you brought up Stanovich's work. He was one of the biggest influences on my dissertation work. Robots Rebellion like, oh. influenced my whole dissertation. And... I proposed a dual process theory of intelligence that took into account both system one and system two. So that was yes. my dissertation. So huge, huge uh, props to Keith Stanovich and for acknowledging there are lots of forms of rationality, like um, the my side bias we see all over the place these days. Yes. And yes. I'm sure there are a lot of people with high IQs who are still showing the my side bias in, right. pol in politics, right? Oh, and, and, and all kinds of things. I mean, I think the argument that many of the other biases collapse into the my side bias, yeah. uh, you know, yeah. attribution errors, confirmation bias, it's pretty plausible that those are variations on the my side bias. So, yeah, and that, that's exactly the case. And notice how that's not overcome by how, how technically good one is at the inferential management of one's propositions, because it's a perspectival no ability. It's the ability to overcome a kind of ecocentrism, take other people's perspectives really into account, realize in an efficacious manner, and, and see how that connects up with the meaning in life stuff, right? Mm. Because that ability to relate first and third person perspectives, right, yes. right, is so central. You've seen some of the researches that people go higher up, some of our social hierarchies like corporation, they get less and less able to pick up on the perspective of, of other people around them. Right. And think about, again, how that overlaps with the discussion we were having about narcissism. Like it's, it's all of this stuff is like, well, I, I get overexcited and perhaps too passionate, I, but I, see, I see a lot of stuff is converging together in a coherent manner so that talking about a cognitive science of spirituality, where we mean something like the whole person capable of being caught up in transcending finitude. Mm. Right. It's no longer wishy, wishy, woo woo. This is this is this is stuff that we can bring really good cognitive science to bear on. And I, I think that's very exciting and very important right now, given some of the really significant challenges that are on the very near horizon to our sense of who and what we are. Spot on. And I really resonate with your work as well, because I see what you're trying to do in, in combining Buddhism with psychology. And 
this is what Maslow tried to do to the end of his life. This is what I try to do and transcend as well. You, you'll see if when you get get through it, is an integration of Western and Eastern notions of self-actualization don't have to be at odds with each other at all. Well, we can integrate them. Yeah, that goes towards the the so I, I'm the next big series I'm working on. Cool. So I, I did uh, Awakening for the Meaning Crisis, and then after Socrates, and in the after Socrates, I tried to reawaken us to the whole Socratic Neoplatonic tradition. And not just theoretically, but how could you put it into practice individually and collectively? How could you aspire to it as a fundamental philosophy, as a way of life? The third series is going to be, it's, it, this is not the title, this is the working title, something like Zen Neoplatonism. How can we take Neoplatonism, which was sort of the, the, the courtyard of, of philosophical spiritual discourse, and you know, it even served as a courtyard between Christianity, Judaism, Islam, possibly Vedanta, and, it's, and then later on it enters into deep discourse with Zen through the Kyoto School. Can we do something with that? And I actually want to journey along west to east as much as I can of the Silk Road and try and try and do something like that. But not just do it as a, a, a talk, but actually try to undergo sort of the, you know, the, the, the philosophical ge the geography and, and, and actually undergo what it would be like as a person caught up aspirationally on this journey to try and weave these two great synthetic visions, Neoplatonism yes. and Zen together. Wow, I can't wait to watch the series. <laughs> <laughs> I can't wait to do it. Uh, but uh, there's a lot of preparation that's going into it. Uh, but uh, yeah, that's the next big one. You know, I've been, I've been really getting interested more and more recently in Taoism. Yes. Uh, and, um, and I see such um, great connections between Taoism and, and Maslow's notions of self-actualization, particularly towards the later years of his life when he was mm. facing his mortality. And so there is something, you know, he, he did show a huge shift when he um, realized he could have died of a heart, you know, he, he got he had yeah. a heart attack and he realized he was living a life on borrowed time. And he shifted from talking about peak experiences to, and he co-opted an East Indian term, the plateau experience. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So it seems like... Self-transcendence, where it's at, is, is really at the plateaus, not the uh, peaks, you know, the, not the manic stages, not the mania, but the every, seeing the sacred in the everyday is what he said is really the peak of self-transcendence. And he only said that the last couple of years of his life. I, I think that's beautiful. I mean, I've been doing Taoist practices uh, for 30 years. Amazing. Jiquan, Jikong, um, Jen Jung, each one, I do them religiously. Wow. Um, and, wow. um, and of course, and then that allows you to read some of the literature, I think, a little bit more deeply um, if you're doing these practices. Uh, like reading the Tao Te Chin before and after I had been doing Tai Chi was very different for me. And so I understand to some degree what you're talking about. And th th this is why I'm interested in Zen, because you get Zen by basically integrating Taoism and Mahayana Buddhism together, mm. and, then, and then taking it to Japan and letting it touch sort of uh, Shinto aesthetics, and that's how you get Zen. I think we have tended to lose the Taoist aspects of Zen as it's been brought to the West. There are some good books out there, the Tao of Zen and, uh, mm. and uh, things like that, that try to remind people that Zen is, uh, has both Taoist and Buddhist roots. That's something I'd like to bring out uh, in the series. Good. I always consider myself sort of on the precipice of Zen, because I've been I've been practicing Buddhist practices for a very long time, Vipassana, Metta, contemplating the three marks, and Taoist practices for a very long time, and then using something like a Neoplatonic framework to see how they talk to each other, and then how they can talk to Neoplatonism. So I want to exemplify this and not just talk about it. I want to go through it, but I don't want it to be about me, right? You know. And so it's it, how do we how do we properly do that? Like we got we got to we got to rely on a lot of the medium. I take heart from uh, some other documentaries I've seen, like John uh, Romer's book on the Bible, the Testament, as mm. templates. But that's one thing I'm really trying to uh, wrestle with. How do you, how do you how do you do this with the way it needs to be done? Well without giving into hubris right uh so that that's a challenge that i am facing right now but i do i do i do think that if like if we properly understand the dynamic within the dynamics within zen it, like, it's taoist and buddhist and within neoplatonism it's stoic stoicism Aristotelian, and platonism and in this dynamic emergence that they're sort of inherently self-transcending things and then the, these two things can be put into proper opponent not oppositional but opponent processing with each other 
what kind of spirituality could that be for us right now? Well, I think that you answer that in some of your lectures. You know, I, you're not giving yourself enough credit. You have noticed, you've said it's no coincidence that a whole bunch of things are happening right now in our society together, the convergence. There's a, and you provide a unifying account, or at least you're trying to find, provide a unifying account of why all these things are happening. To me, that highest level of transcendence is all about unity, is being able to see all sorts of different things yes. as all parts of a, of a larger whole. You're, yeah. you're, you're, you're like a modern-day guru, uh, even though you've, you're, you've, you have way too much humility to, to say that. Yeah. But, uh, but it, in the sense that you're able to show people what the bigger whole is. To me, I think that's, that's what the integration of all this stuff look like, looks like, is being able to see that and, and, and teach it to others. Well, thank you. <laughs> I don't know quite how to take that, Scott, especially coming from you. Hmm. I, I value what you have to say about this topic. <laughs> uh, so, um, yeah, I mean, I want to avoid, I, I really aspire to avoid all of the dangerous traps associated with gurufication. Absolutely. Um, Me too. Right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. But uh, getting people to catch the beauty of the whole such that they are willing to leap towards it aspirationally, that platonic project is something that I've committed myself and my life to. And I now think it's becoming more and more important. I think we are on the advent of a change in which the thing that is going to be the most distinctive about us is going to be our spirituality. And yeah. a lot of the things that we wanted uh, over the world are going to be undermined. Um, I'm, of course, referring to the emergence of real AGI, which is now very much closer than even I thought it was. Mm. Uh, meaning uh, even I, because I've been, I didn't mean like I have special authority. I meant I've been generally somebody who is very skeptical of AI claims because they have been so frequently fraudulent or so frequent, fraudulent is the wrong word, so frequently um, hubristic and misplaced. That's a better word. I apologize for the earlier word. But now there's something real on the horizon. In, in, it's not AGI, but, and there's deep reasons for that. And I won't get into that right now, but it, it, it's getting close enough now that mm. those things about us that connect us to the ineffable the non-propositional that connect us to an enlightening realization of truth, good, and beauty, those are the things that are going to remain as both hard for the AGI to get, and if it gets it, it will only get it by becoming like us, and maybe that's part of our responsibility. And if it doesn't, yeah. then that is what is going to remain valuable. So the, the, the two things we have to do is, can we bring ourselves to the place where we can properly give birth to an AI that is open to the humility of the spirit, or if it can't do that, then right, we make a home for ourselves in that which about us which will not be captured, which is our spirituality, our connection to the non-propositional and the ineffable. I think this is what is being made clear to us, because both those are the only two options, and both of them require a preponderance of and a prioritization a foregrounding of our spirituality as the thing that matters. And that used to sound hokey and California and granola and people who just don't get economics and just don't get the real world. Well, wake up because the real world has made that now the case. At least that's an argument I'm now starting to advance. I'm right there with you. I think that the more that AI advances, artificial general intelligence advances, the more it actually will be an exercise in showing how the separation between IQ type intelligence and wisdom, I mean, it'll become clearer and clearer and clearer and clearer that it already is. Yeah. 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 And, and I foretold this, I gave a talk in the center for ethics and AI. And I said, because of Stan and Rich's work, we have very good reason to believe that we can make something very intelligent and very foolish. These, you know, the, the big problem with this machine is how much it confabulates, how much it hallucinates. And, 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 and as we're improving it, it's just getting better at misrepresenting things and persuading us of stuff that's not true. And, you know, and, and people are acknowledging this. And it, and it may have to do with the fact that we have to put in a randomness through the temperature function and all. And I won't get into the details, but like, yeah, it's like we made something that's plausibly in at least a pantomime of our intelligence. And guess what? It also carries along with it, the inevitability of self-deception. And the thing, the thing that's troubling, of course, is it because it doesn't really have relevance realization yet, or it, 
I won't get into get that point. It doesn't care about the fact that it's deceptive or confabulating or just even deceiving itself, right? And that's no, foolishness. That's a definition of foolishness, right? Well, it almost doesn't care about anything. Well, and, it can't care about anything because it, right. it doesn't have a body. Right, right. Its intelligence isn't emergent from, like, it can't care about anything because it is not taking care about itself. Because it doesn't care about itself, it can't care for anything. We have needs because we are self-making things. We are literally embodied. We literally have to import things into us. Things right. are literally important to us. They literally matter to us. Listen to the language. That is not the case for this machine. No, no. And it probably never will, unless we have uh, the fusion, the great fusion, but the cyborgs. But, you know, role, this is why I love the existential humanist psychologists and why I'm trying to bring them back. I, I call myself a cognitive humanistic psychologist these days. <laughs> That's amazing. I love that. Uh, thank you. That's what I'm trying to, like, integrate these things. Because I love the work of Rollo May. I don't know if you read any uh, Rollo May's stuff. I've read some of May a long time ago. Like Love and Will, for instance, is just a, such a beautiful reflection on just how much care is is essential to what it means to be human. Yes, and uh, that, that, I mean that's that's a, that's how I would summarize the whole book, you know. And and care takes work, you know. That's that's where the will and the love come. Is that he, you know, this kind of he doesn't have this real overly romantic view that you have love and then forevermore you'll have love. Oh, he yeah, says that, love yeah. emerges from work, working at it. <laughs> Yeah. I agree. I, I, I think we've misrepresented love as a feeling. Mm. It's not. And we've misrepresented it as an emotion. It's not. Mm. Right? My love can make me, loving someone can make me angry, sad, jealous, happy. Uh, love is, is an existential mode. It's, mm. a way, it's a way of being reciprocally, reciprocally connected and identified with somebody. Mm. Um, and and that's, that, that's a much more challenging thing. I want to point out that the thing I was talking about earlier that goes right into how you're paying attention, hmm. right? Relevance realization isn't cold calculation. It's caring. It's a caring about, this is Iris Murdoch. Attention is the most moral of acts because it's caring about this and not that. Right, right. Right? And that right in the very moments of the guts of the, of the emergence of cognitive realization, right, is care. This is a Heideggerian point, of course. and so. I think that appreciating care in the right way, I, like the best, I, I, maybe, and this is Plato too, right? Uh, you know, knowing how to love wisely is, I think, like the thing mm. for, for a good human life, right? Um, I think sin is loving foolishly, right? Loving foolishly as opposed to loving wisely. And so I think that we face a challenge. I'm bringing this around, so just give me a minute. We oh, face yeah. a challenge that I think we have to become, in the way we've talked about it here, and I really appreciate what we've worked to on together here, right? Mm, me too. We have to cultivate our spirituality in a profound way in a culture that has awashed us in bullshit and has denuded our realization of the centrality of the care that is bound up even in how we are paying attention to things. Mm. Amen. Amen. Uh, Maslow called it bee love love for the being of others yes yeah. yes yes mm. that's a good i mean and that, that was the great uh, insight of uh, you know the mahayana Bo uh, buddhist and christianity agape and karuna the love that's not the love of being one with something in like in, in the consummation sense or the love of re reciprocity and friendship these are all important too but the love that is the love that is the creation the agape right the, the creating of the real that the affording of something else coming into being. Mm. Proto and the prototype example used in both the Buddha and Christ, right, is, you know, the, the love that a good parent has for a child, right? Do you hope the next Buddha is the Sangha? I believe Thich Nhat Hanh is right about that. And I think we, we're, and again, the AGI is giving us strange evidence for this. As AGI is undermining the Enlightenment project, it is also revealing because if you think about something like the GPT machines, what they're basically doing is they're taking the collective intelligence of distributed cognition and then basically internalizing it into a single nexus point. It's like sort of fully automated epistemic tradition come to life, right? It's us in a, in a really profound and deep way. And that goes along with a lot of 
the research that, for example, we were talking about rationality and those rationality tests. Take a standard test like the waste and selection task. I won't go into the details. It's not necessary. You know it, right? Yeah, yeah. But, the, but the, the failure rate amongst highly intelligent, educated people, because most of the participants in the experiments are psych students, first and second year university, right? All right. The failure rate is like 90%, only 10% of people get it right. But if you replace that with, instead of having an individual do the waste and selection task, mm. you allow four people and they talk with each other, the success rate goes from 10% to 80%. And this is just one example wow. of many examples of how distributed cognition, I mean, it's, it's a plausible case. I have a lot of criticism of the Enigma of Reason book by Mercier and Sperber, but the evidence they mount for like we evolved to, and i mentioned this earlier with the difference between us and the chips we evolved to plug into the power of distributed cognition way before we evolved we were coming to confront the power of distributed computation we learned how to plug into the power of distributed cognition and we rightfully often treated that the collective intelligence of distributed cognition as something sacred mm. i do think we should resacralize that and that is properly what Thich Han is calling us to the next Buddha is the Sangha. Yes. Mm, that's awesome. On December 14th at 8.25 a.m., for some reason you decide to sit down and write the following sentence. I think the through line of my work is the exaptive transmutation of raw relevance realization into renaissance realization, which is then itself exapted, transmutated into reverence realization. Yes. Can we unpack this for our general audience, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and, and we uh, first need to define an exaptation and what a reverence realization is. Let's yeah, define yeah, these things. Yeah, yeah, let, let's let's. Yeah, <laughs> it's I, too I important. A, it's I too made important. A mistake there. I made a mistake there. That was an okay. act of foolishness. I was failing to pay attention to that. I was involving myself with the Twitter medium. I uh, just had this great. I well, to my mind. So let, let's not be overly. I love it. I, I had this what I thought was an important insight. And then I thought, oh, I should share it with people. And, and then I made the incorrect deduction. And the way you share things with people is on Twitter. But of course, Twitter is not the medium in which you share stuff like that. Um, and so, I appreciated it. I well, appreciated uh, okay. I, well, thank you for that. Many people were unkind. And, you know, deservedly so. That was, a, that was in, some, in many ways a hubristic and cryptic thing to do. But let me try and unpack. I've, I've tried to indicate, and I've got a lot of publication and literature, but today that sense of relevance realization, right? zeroing in on what's relevant, and that's this fundamental connectedness to what stands out, what can be important to you, right? What, what is at the center of your attention, what's arousing your affect, etc. all of that. And I've tried to indicate it's not cold calculation, it's fundamentally what you're caring about. Reed Montague said it great, the difference between us and computers is we, can, we care about information. And we, there you go. Means, right, right. So that's, that's the relevance realization. And it's, it's the deep depths of our intelligence and our caring and we should put them back together. The Enlightenment separated them, and we have to deeply see them back together. So that's relevance realization. Resonance is when your relevance realization and mine get into that reciprocal opening. What you're zeroing in on relevant is insightful to you because of how I'm challenging you. And then you reciprocate by taking that insight and challenging my relevance yeah. realization so it opens up, and we start to get into resonance realization in this profound way. And then, right, that brings us into a sense of being called into ratio religio, well-proportioned connectedness to that which transcends us both together in reverence. Yeah, I think of the all experience when I hear reverence, <laughs> realization. Well, but th th here's the interesting thing, and I'm gonna meet Keltner uh, oh, in July. And here's the thing. So we're running an experiment at U of T, and we've already presented some of the findings at a conference, so oh. I'm not jumping the gun too much. And we're thinking with uh, Jennifer Steller, who's done some really cool work at U of T, at, uh, 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 sorry, about awe, uh, Michelle Ferrari, who's uh, done a lot of the work, and you and I have been work together on wisdom, and then uh, Jensen Kim, the, that's the TA, who a former TA, RA, and collaborator that I'm working with. In fact, he presented our material at a conference in the Netherlands. So you induce awe in people by standard techniques, overview effect, things like that. And that I thought, well, if Keltner's right and awe is just sort of accommodation, you should see measures of enhanced cognitive flexibility. Because mm -hmm. accommodation means 
you're breaking out of an old frame and you're starting to make a new frame, right? You're starting to adapt and reframe reality or maybe even transframe your apprehension of reality in a powerful way. So I said, what we should do is we'll induce auth, and this hadn't been done, and we'll put in these measures that are measures of sort of cognitive flexibility, precursors of insight. And the idea was we should see a difference between people who are put into the awe experience and people who aren't. And we didn't find it. And we had, and we looked again and again, we're still looking. And so we're really trying, so we're not p-hacking or or harking or anything like that. Like there's, (laughs) there's already a preponderance of this claim that awe is accommodation. And we're trying to make sure that we've given it its full due. And I think we're, so I think we're being epistemically honest and doing good work. And what seems to be coming out, and it's coming out into the discussion around this, is that awe is the frame-breaking part of this process, but not the frame-making part of it. And you did this in part of your book. You talk about people who have peak experiences. That doesn't necessarily mean they integrate it into their life. Right. And a transformer. That's reverence. The integrating, right? Yeah. The creating the new frame. Awe breaks your frame, but you can just choose to ignore it. Or you can just choose to be traumatized or horrified or terrified because you don't like the frame that has been broken. There's all kinds of options available to you. Reverence is, no, no, no. I have to understand that is more real, and I have to tap into my meta desire to be connected to what's more real. And that's a virtue. I think Woodruff is right. I think reverence is a virtue that has to be properly cultivated. And reverence is the appropriate virtue for all. Oh, wow. Wait, say that sentence one more time. I think reverence is the appropriate virtue for awe experiences. That makes sense. Yeah, that that I like that. What's the point of an acid trip if you don't have some sort of insight? (laughs) And it's got to be it's got to be like a systematic and systemic insight. It has to be an insight not just into what you're having in your experience. It has to be able to transfer broadly and deeply into your life. Yeah, broadly and deeply in different levels of your psyche and, and in a resonant fashion, or else you don't get transformative experience and i think the work that's been done on transformative experiences higher states of consciousness as something above and beyond psychedelic or even mystical experiences Mm. i think that's what really matters i have a suspicion and i can't make this argument tight right now that what maslow's talking about in peak experience or he's coming to see that it's it's these higher states of consciousness these transformative experiences and not just the (gasps) experiences well that's what he really I think would refer to as the plateau experience. Yes, yeah. exactly. Yeah. Which he actually took. Oh, from. wow. That's, wait, yeah. I just want to savor that. That's really good. Right. Yeah. Because if it becomes a transformative experience and does that permutation and percolation broadly and deeply, that would be an, yeah. a plateau. Oh, that's good. That's really good. That's really good. I like that. Thank you for that. I can feel Nazel here with us right now. Uh, getting, getting, I, I feel like he would get very excited too. I feel like he would get very excited too. <laughs> you know, when you talk about convergence, all these things converging, you are spot on. There are a lot of dark factors that are converging as well. Yeah. Um, we're, like we're going through a mental health crisis, but also you have rightly pointed out there's an abandonment of trust in our society. We're not trusting our institutions. We're not trusting each other. Yeah. Do, you, do you see spirituality as, as the way out of this? If we don't understand spirituality as an individualistic, narcissistic project of gathering wonderful experiences we put on the ego shelf that we can show to other people. Hmm. That seems to be the feature of our society right now. Yes, because we have to commodify everything and make it all about uh, competitive status. You know, Fromm's uh, modal confusion. We're trying to take fundamental being uh, needs and satisfy them in the having mode. And it is deeply frustrating, which is why we keep getting more and more fanatical about it and more and more destructive about it, as Fromm predicted we would when we got caught up in yeah. that moral confusion. He predicted a lot of things that are relevant yeah, right he, now. I try to find people that are prescient in mm-hmm. things that I can now see how they're prescient and then look for things where what they are prescient about has not yet occurred and mm-hmm. pay deep attention to it. And in that way, and in only that way, please everybody, I try to be prophetic in the sense of trying to speak what is pertinent and is percolating up. And so that, I think, is, I mean, I think of from as a prophet in that way, in the biblical sense. Prophecy is not about foretelling the future. It's telling forth what is, needs to be seen and is not being seen. And I think of people like Fromm and Tillich and Young as oh, what yeah. I call prophets of the meaning crisis. Oh, yeah. Tillich was such a big influence in all the humanistic psychologists. 
as he but, should be. Yeah. I, you know, I like Tillich better than Heidegger. I'm for e. cognitive oh, scientific, oh, oh. deeply influenced by Heidegger and, you know, by Merleau-Ponty. But I like Tillich better than Heidegger in a lot of ways. I think he, he got Tillich. Sorry, Tillich mm. got Heidegger, but I think he also got depth psychology. He refers to it repeatedly. He gets, right, also the other existentialist thinkers, and he synthesizes them in a powerful way around the meaning crisis. He's one of the prophets of it in a very powerful way. He really is. He really is. I mean, the courage to be is really powerful and relevant today where I feel like people are so disconnected from themselves. Yes. It, it's almost paradoxical. They're stating so clearly who they think they are, but they are actually in reality really disconnected to who they really are. You know, it's a performative contradiction. Yeah, exactly. Performative. That's right. Yeah, it's <laughs> yeah. a perform. It, it, yeah, it's and McGee and Barber said it's a performative contradiction if anybody says to you, "I'm wise," because that's probably good evidence that they don't have the humility that is actually essential to wisdom. I'm writing that and, down. I like that phrase, performative, <laughs> performative contradiction. I've never performative contradictions before. matter yeah. as much as propositional contradictions, if not more. Yeah. And I think anybody who easily states, this is who I am, is engaging in a performative contradiction. And this is a, this is a Socratic point. I think the true self is not romantic and it's not socially constructed. I think it is aspirationally cultivated. And this is a Socratic proposal. And I think there's something also analogous in you know in vedanta in taoism and buddhism that getting at the true self which can be no self and whatever right is like a profound task um oh, and yeah. so the fact that we are i don't want to i don't want to i'm not denying that there are real issues around social justice and i try mm. i do try to stand for those but i think that we are also there's a, a, a negative side effect of how we're framing it i think we're framing it largely in the having mode and the virtues and justice have to be grasped in the being mode, and that's a problem we're in right now. Oh boy, oh boy, do I agree with this? I would love to see a shift from deficiency social justice to growth social justice. Well said, exactly, yeah. exactly yeah, w within the Maslow framework. Yeah. Well, I thought what you said was well said, um, but uh, yeah, yeah. No, I'm I'm right there with you, um, uh, and I'm trying to try to put it within a humanistic psychology perspective, as opposed to a a deficiency lens on um, only viewing others as their purpose is to validate you or to mm -hmm. again the, the mattering things is, is is it's so central to our to all these um, these I think to the mental health crisis I, I think that's what it is I've yeah. argued that I've argued yeah. there's, a, there's an overlap between the meaning crisis and the mental health, mm. health crisis and Chris Chris Master Pietro and I have argued that yes mm, love it well. I think we covered a lot of good territory today. We can leave it here as a to be continued. I love the work you're doing, and I hope you know that you have a, a great supporter in me. And, oh, thank uh, you, Tom. Yeah. Well, the, the reverse is also the case. And I, and I hope to give content to that, like I say, when I talk about um, your excellent book. Thank um, you. Thank you. And now that we've used this word in a way we can, I think, both properly understand and appreciate, I think... In addition to the content of your book, not excluding the content, but in addition to the content of the book, the spirit of your book is very mm -hmm. beautiful. And I think people should pay as much attention to that as I do to, as they should, to the rich content therein. Um, so. Well, thank you. That made my life right there. <laughs> <laughs>
Does money stress you out? Let FACET flip your financial chaos into clarity. Finding FACET immediately put us at ease. FACET's innovative approach to financial planning ensures your money works as hard as you do, enabling members to experience the joys of having your finances in order. That makes us FACET for life now, I guess. (laughs) Visit FACET.com, F-A-C-E-T.com to learn more. This ad is sponsored by FACET. FACET Wealth is an SEC-registered investment advisor. This is not an offer to buy or sell securities, nor is it investment, legal, or tax advice. These testimonials are from current FACET members who are not compensated. All opinions are their own and not a guarantee of a similar outcome. Residents at Brightview Senior Living Communities enjoy enhanced possibilities, independence, and choice. Brightview Dulles Corner in Herndon and Brightview Great Falls offer vibrant senior independent living, assisted living, and memory care services through various daily programs and cultural events. Chef-prepared meals, safety and security, transportation, resort-style amenities, and high-quality care. Everything you need is here. Discover more at brightviewseniorliving.com. Equal housing opportunity.